in, uh, in my document up there, okay, uh, in my version of it all, I actually, and I just changed it five minutes before, I just put down Jesus, uh, James Davis, loved. Loved. It is a full stop because it doesn't need any more than that. And those are the only letters that we require around us. James Davis, loved. And I want to speak on that uh, this morning with you. I don't know how far we get in the journey. Uh, I'll watch the clock. Okay, but we'll see how we get on. Now, you'll probably throw me out right now as I, I ask you to look at this one here and see what's missing. If we can just put the next one up there. Okay, those of you who have probably got some wisdom of uh, Pooh or Tigger or Piglet in your office there to keep you going the day, are okay, look at this one here and... Uh, and I'm not sure it helps me at all, but there's something missing in this quote. I don't know if you realize this. Yeah, does anyone know what it is? Okay, so pin interest has got to learn, isn't it? Let's go to the next one here. It says, and loved more than you will ever know. Actually, I'm going to change that a little bit this morning. I think we have hope that we'll know the fullness of his love. But I do want you to understand that you are loved more than you know, more than you realize, and more than you understand. Joel started that two weeks ago and ended it with a statement, Jesus loves you more than you know, more than you are persuaded so far. It's a wonderful thing to be loved. But this is also a wonderful love. A love that you've never known, nor could you, or could experience unless you understand how God loves you. It is the most one-sided, unfair love that you can experience. Because you bring nothing to it. Well, he just pours it out on you. When you don't feel lovable, he loves you. When you have railed against him, argued that he was wrong, it shouldn't have gone this way or that way, he loves you. When you've rejected his way and sought your own things in your own way, he loves you. When you feel you've badly let yourself down or let someone down that you love, he loves you when you don't even want to be loved. He loves you. you know, we're watching Seth at the moment and the love of a mum for a child that doesn't always get what he wants and is struggling to understand the philosophies of life and why he doesn't get all these things. And he reacts and he shouts and he runs and he hits and he, and mum just holds on to him. Bears all the grief and battering and agony. And tells him, I love you. That tiny poor illustration is what God is doing with you. It's not conditional on, on you or who you are or what you've just done or what you will be, he loves you. He isn't giving you a chance 
that you might be loved. You're not a project of change that he could love you more. He loves you. My plea this morning is that I would understand this more and I would be persuaded more by this and not see the love of God through the eyes or the lens of something else or some other way. You are loved by the one who created love, who is the originator of love, the perfecter of love. You are loved by God and his son, Jesus Christ. Put a full stop. There's no love like this that you could have ever considered or that you could have ever experienced. It's to you, it's for you, it's with you. It's active, it's dynamic, it's consistent, it's constant. You know, we we sit there for a minute and we think of 1 Corinthians 13 uh, and read so often in many different marriage ceremonies and we hear that love is patient and kind and it rejoices and it bears all things and it believes all things and it hopes all things and it endures all things and love never ends. Of course, we use it in relationship with one another but we understand where it all comes from it's from him and I am accepted and I am welcome and I am set free and I may add this I am because I'm in that love. I want to remind you very simply, and when, you know, Rachel was going to give us a chorus to start off this one, I thought she was going to start off with the one, Jesus loves you, this I know. Maybe that's too old for you, Rachel, I don't know. Forgive me. He loves you. And he wants you to know him, and he wants you to enjoy him, and he wants you to love him. And he wants you to spend time with him. That you might get to know him. Those words we were singing just a few minutes ago. And his prayer is that you believe this. That you're persuaded by this. That you're convinced by this. And that you're not here in fear. Or that you will not seek to do. But rather know and enjoy Abigail thank you so much for reading those scriptures and we will end uh, uh, the service today with those scriptures but I need a second passage to illustrate this because in the middle of a world that is that is not as God wants and in the middle of a world that is not no longer shaped by God we would say a a broken world in which we now live and experience these things day by day, a broken world that also Jesus Christ lived in, I I need something to be able to illustrate the love of God, and I also need to bring into context perhaps the last three weeks of the three prayers that you've been going through from John 17. So to pick up a prayer of Jesus that he prays in the midst of great turmoil, tragedy and sorrow 
and that's John 11. So forgive me, although I'm going to read this relatively quickly, and it will be on the screen in front of you, I'm going to have to sort of move through it quite quickly because it's a long chapter. And therefore, where it's dots, I'm going to leave you later on to fill in uh, the gaps. Okay. So John 11, uh, uh, verse uh, uh, 1, Now a certain man was ill, Zach, uh, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his hair, his feet rather, with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus said this, heard it he said this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it now Jesus loved Martha her sister and Lazarus so when he heard Lazarus was ill he stayed two days longer in the place where he was then after this he said to his disciples let us go to Judea again coming into verse 17 when he came he found Lazarus had been in the tomb Four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Devastated. Well, I tell you now, Mary loved the Lord Jesus. Couldn't get up. Couldn't get up even to greet him. I need to move forward again. For, for, forgive me, but just to point out the most obvious disappointment of Mary there. Martha goes and greets Jesus and the, the conversation is focused on the past and why Jesus hadn't been there and hadn't acted as they expected and didn't give them what they assumed he wanted for them. There's some wonderful scriptures in here, and, and, and Keith, who's now disappeared but was over here a few minutes ago, Keith, a year ago, went through this passage. On, it's still on your website, uh, uh, and he, he opened it up wonderfully for you at that time. We won't have the time to do that today. Verse 28, when she, Martha, had, heard, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in pride, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to meet him. Uh, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you will remember those are the exact same words that have gone through the mouth of Martha a few minutes before and it clearly have been through ringing through the house for days on end. Where is he? Why has he not stepped in? Why has he not brought it himself here? Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some said, could he not? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you will always, or that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he had done, believed in him. How do we know love today? The problem is when we, we hear about love, our, our reference or our ability to understand it is not always good. Our experience of love is not always great. It varies dramatically and often is the cause of great pain. And therefore, can we really trust this love? Is it really love? And I look in my own life here now and say, well, how do I work out love in my own life? Well, more often than not, I want to see the evidence of love. I realize I may be alone in that. I think you've done the five love languages here before, haven't you? Oh, no. I know those inside out, and I know the ones I want. When we read the evidence of love, we need something that will work out for our comfort and for our, for our, for our advantage. And quite often, although you might stop yourself saying these, you at least think these things, and they would go something like, you don't love me, and you challenge the love. Or you say, if you loved me, you... And you put conditions on the love. Or you might say, blatantly, show me. And you offer a chance to the others to reveal love to you. <coughs> Even if we don't say it, we think it. And we, we put our expectations and our demands on testing this love. We worry about it being a conditional love to us, fragile in that way, and therefore we put conditions on it. And so I ask myself the question, how do I understand love? How do I understand what love is? Does this affect how I appreciate God's love to me? How do I work out love in my own life? How do I love other people? Does this impact how I receive love and, and, and perceive love and accept love? How do I react to love? Warily, suspiciously. Protectively, angrily, ang I can't say that word, with anger. I'll wait and see. Prove it. And do I react to the idea of God loving me in, in a similar way? Where, where, where can I see it in, in this situation? Where can I see it in this circumstance? Why, why do these things happen? You know, sadly, uh, uh, last year, and Carolyn will probably tell me it's two years ago now, but, uh, but 
one of our youth, one of our, our second generation of youth, so mother had been through youth with us and then this little one came along. And um, still a teenager, uh, she ran into problems with love within the family. And what she sought was freedom to do things that the family did not think were right for her and wanted to protect her from. And things escalated and the youngster ran away from home and wouldn't, re wouldn't return thinking that freedom was better than protective love. Yeah, they stayed with us for a few weeks. Um, we were sort of neutral ground, I suppose, in that, in that regard. But it didn't really resolve many issues. They still continued to, to, to run off. And, you know, uh, Callum would find you know, in the morning that they weren't there and the police would bring them back and uh, so on. On the final afternoon that, that she was with us, uh, we sat down and uh, she wanted to go out. And we sat there and begged her not to reject the love of those who love her. Or something that she thought might be freedom. And I said to her, you know, once you've rejected the love of those who really love you, there's not many places left. He loves you. Can you accept that? Can you receive it? There's nothing more he needs to do. He loves you. Can you accept that all the things that are ahead are part of his love? I want to speak about abiding for a few minutes in love. In John 15, uh, we read these words. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, I will, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have written to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves you. In the same way, and to the same degree, as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves you. Just abide, dwell, remain. Sit and soak in the very fact that he loves you the same way as the Father loves the Son. We look at verse 10 and we, we, we sort of need to touch on this in a moment because it would seem that if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love. And you think, oh, there we are, back again, conditional love. Does it sound that way to you? Is that the way that you've always thought about it? Who's moving in this relationship? Joe loves mathematics. I don't know if you discovered that yet. We never got to explain relative velocity or relative positions to him. So let's just keep it straightforward this morning, shall we? I find myself distant to God, not because he's moved. I find myself no longer abiding in his presence, not feeling his love. Who's moved? He hasn't moved. His love is still there, 
It's constant, it's consistent, and if you think it is, you have missed the idea of God and his love. This is simply a practical point from the Lord. As he's saying to his disciples, and the advice that he gives us in, the, in chapter 14 to 16 is quite simply this. If you continue to reject God's way for you, you move yourself out of the sunshine of his love. You, he abides in light, and if you put yourself in darkness, you can't abide in his love. Find light. Find love. Dwell there. The prodigal son te tells us that. You know, the, the love of the father never changed. It's, it's the most wonderful story that the Lord Jesus Christ told. The love of the father never changed. It didn't go up and down. As this son made these ridiculously decisions in his life, the love of the father never changed. The same, the son comes back and he finds the love of the father. My son. Oh no, dad, I only deserve to be your servant. No, 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 you're my son. Lost and found. And the son chooses to place himself to abide and dwell again in the love of the father. Did the love of the father change? When he was in a distant land, when he had thrown it all off, did the love of the father change? No. We have this image burned into us of him going up every day onto the, to the roof of his house and just looking out in agony and love for the son to return. Well, let me just put it the other way. Did the love of the father change when he came back? Did it grow or get bigger? No. It could not. It was immeasurable. And it is immeasurable. There's nothing I can do to reduce the love in the same way as there's nothing that I can do to increase the love. It is infinite. I appreciate we're back in mathematics here, so we'll move on quickly again. And then, then it says, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. And for a moment, I, I need to just check this understanding that we have with God our Father with you. Let's talk about the relationship that we have with the Father in comparison to the relationship with God the Father and God the Son. Well, it's got to be different, isn't it? God the Father must love God the Son more than he would love us. You're all theologically trying to run around with your head on this one now. Well, he, God the Father and, and God the Son, and, and we are a distant cousin. No. No. You know, if this was a formal dinner, and I have too many of those formal dinners, and they put a table plan out, you know, and you'll probably know it from the weddings as well. You put a table plan out, and you're looking to see where you're going to be, and if you judge where you're going to be in this one year, I think I'll start at the bottom and work upwards, okay? And uh, somewhere on table 2,764,498, there I'll be near the exit and near the fire door. That's where you're expecting to be, isn't it, when God invites you to the feast? You know, you're thinking there, yes, I've got a home in heaven, that's wonderful, down the back street near the outskirts of the city. You know? No! You're on top table. I 
can't get this through physically to you, right? And I haven't worked it out because I couldn't work it out, but we're all on top table. We have a room in his house, not in some other house. You're all sitting there thinking, I was fortunate to get an invite, and I'm not complaining when I'm going to be. No. He loves you. He loves you. In John 20, Mary is told something quite incredible by the Lord. And only you've been going through John, and and I've just been reading through John just simply in the mornings recently. Only I, I hadn't seen this before. Forgive me, but I hadn't seen this before. In John 20, Mary is told just immediately at the resurrection, she doesn't recognize him, Mary Rabboni. Uh, And then the Lord says to her, go and tell my brothers, my brothers. We just read that in Romans 8, didn't we? Go and tell my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. He places us in the same position. We are in the love of God the same. I can't compute that. I need to accept it. Imagine Mary going back to tell the disciples. He said that he's going back to his father, and he said, Our father. Two. I sort of imagine Peter coming up to her quietly saying, did he include me? And Mary said, he must have included you, Peter. Because the angels also said to us, and Peter. You mean, only three days ago, I told him of something I would do, and then I got it wrong, and I denied him, and I... Yes, you're in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so we go forward to Romans 8, to the verses we perhaps didn't cover in the reading earlier on, and say, for you did not receive a spirit of, of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. And heirs of God. I'm going to change it to my old translation in a minute. Fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. You're suffering? He, he's, he knows. He knows. As Christ suffered. And this is part of the journey. For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re- revealed to us. I can't explain this at all to you. I have no chance. In all my experience of loving This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's outside our normal expectation and experience. It is God's 
grace. His love to you. You are loved as the Father loves the Son. And there is no fear, therefore, in the love of God. He knows you completely and is decided and chosen. And we heard the words of Romans 8. He is decided and chosen to love you despite. It's our greatest fear, isn't it, that we get found out? I think they call it some syndrome these days, uh, but they get found out. To keep ourselves on best behavior to be loved, and we know we can't do that. Uh, Carolyn is sadly learning after 34 years. Actually, it's longer than that. It's 41 years we've known each other. She's sadly learning uh, that I showed her my best, and I convinced her to take a chance on me, to love me. She knew I wasn't perfect, uh, and she, but she's convinced that things will change and get better. Well, the wonderful thing about that was we started with a vow. A vow to love. For better, for worse. Of course, for better, for worse. She expected that to be more in balance than perhaps it was. Okay. She chose to love me, despite. That's why it's an image of God's love. It's a poor image, I know. But he is chosen to love you. Not in based on who you are or what you are or what you're ever going to do or how you're going to change yourself. But because he is love. If anyone does not love, does not know God because God is love. In this, we have, in this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he has let, loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. All those are one John. Just read it 26 times through in there. You can't know it unless you know God. You can't give it unless he brings it to you. Well, uh, and I now know we're not going to get anywhere close to finishing, so I'm now trying to work out how to end. All right? But I just need to take this little question off a minute. If he loves you, if he loves you, what is his prayer for you? Well, you covered this last week, but didn't put the recording up, so I don't know yet. If he loves you, what is his prayer for you? That you be strong. Well, that would be a lovely prayer, wouldn't it? Lord, make me bold. That you be useful, faithful, a worker of good works, a good servant, effective people. No, you, you heard this last week. What was his prayer for you? That you be where I am. That you be where I am. It's the same prayer or the same thing that he said in John 14 to those bewildered, confused, deluded, self-deluded disciples. There they are. Lord, we'll fight for you. We'll march for you. We'll die for you. No, you won't. You're going to get it wrong. Let not your heart be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Sorry, I have mixed versions there. If I would have, have told you, I'd go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be my, to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is the only thing that God is focused on. His permanent presence with you. It's the only thing he wants for you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe this. Be persuaded by this. Be convinced of this. One day forever with me is what Jesus wants. Until then, be convinced that I am for you. How good is that day? Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. I think we're... There we are. Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. This world thinks this is it. I'm going to be polite here. And I'm sure what word I can use. This world is pants. It's unfair. It's suffering. It's unjust. It's not what God aspires or wants for you. He's waiting. And he has plans for you that you cannot conceive. Stephen in Acts 7, this first martyr, here he is. He's not pleading for his life. He's pleading for Jesus. And they take up stones to stone him. What can he see? He can't see the purpose. Why his short life of witness is about to be ended. Why the injustice and the unfairness of these things are going on. He can't even understand that there's a man called Saul there with the clothes at his feet. That God's going to do something incredible with. He has no idea. He can't see Saul. He can't see Paul. He can't see the purposes of God whatsoever. All he can see is who? Standing, waiting for him. Is Jesus. Standing, waiting for him. Is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, can't wait to meet you in person. God the Father knows the name knows your name and has marked the day when he will finally greet you. I accept there's many things he's called us to do. I accept there are many things we are called to do in this life. They don't please God, or rather they do please God, but they don't bring the love of God any closer. But we do it in response to the love. And there is something that we have to say here, that, that we are his workmanship created for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Paul will argue with himself in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I know, he says, there's things of value that I must do now in the suffering in this life that I bring glory to God. Well, let's finish with John 11. Jesus loved these two sisters and the brother. They've opened their home to him. Conversation and food is frequent. 
They know he loved him in verse 3. They remind him of that love. He whom you love is sick. It needs no names. Needs more great explanation. It's an automatic thing that they're expecting a response. Verse 5 tells us that, that now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. You know, in the Word of God, it doesn't often give commentary for us. It gives us narrative and story, but it doesn't give commentary. But we sort of need, needed this commentary because the situation and the circumstances and what was going on in that about to happen seemed to perhaps cause doubt in the mind that, that, that Jesus really loves them. Questions are going back and forth in that house and in that home. And they're not answerable in any way. Why? They couldn't answer at the time. And they've agonized in, in the silence of, of, of God. And they've agonized over the absence of God. And they've agonized after what they, they heard as a response to their prayer and to the request. This sickness will not end in death. What does that mean? He's died. And yet it is possible still even today, despite this world in all its fight and its struggle and its evil and its injustice, it's possible for the glory of God to be revealed through these things. That the significance of God and the person of God and the character of God to be revealed. And Ryan explained to us, to us three weeks ago when he said in, in, two, in John 17 verse 5 that the glory of was the crucifixion. I walked out of here and thought, I never thought about that. How can that possibly be? And then we see a centurion, this hardened centurion, looks up and he says, surely this must be the Son of God. And the glory and the power and the wisdom of God is revealed through the cross and the suffering of the cross. It doesn't mean that Christ's suffering was any less. It was brutal and harsh. But it lifted the glory of God. And so we now are called to reveal that glory and that grace. Does it mean he's not moved? Oh, yes. Verse 33, verse 34, verse 35, verse 38. He agonizes with them. And Keith a year ago told us quite clearly when Jesus wept, it was because he, he suffered in the agony of those that he loved. And Psalm 56 would tell us that, you know, you've taken account of my wanderings and my tears you've put in, in, your, in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You've written them all down on Isaiah 25, is it? Will tell us this, and Revelation 7 and 21 will tell us this. There's a moment coming when he wants to remove the tears and he wiped them all away, and he wants to ensure that there is no more tears. He suffers in agony with you as a friend comes and simply holds you and cries with you. In the same way, Jesus Christ does that. And so he lifts up this prayer. There at the end, he didn't need to pray out loud. He needed to speak a word. But that you might believe, that you might be convinced, that you might be persuaded. It's me who loves you, he says. I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But I said in account of those people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now we're going to have to move forward. So we just move forward to Romans 8 to conclude.
Abigail wrote, read this beautifully for us, and we need to think on this. How many times have you heard this and read this? You could just see it in front of you. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who will bring a charge? Who will condemn? Who can separate? Nothing. And then she read the last two verses in here. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where's the bit that we need to learn? Verse 38 says, for I am sure, I am convinced, I believe. I'm going to drop you back to the old translations from 50 years ago. I am persuaded, persuaded. I live in the, in the light of these things. I live through these experiences because of that love. I am persuaded. I am convinced. You say to me, James, I'm not sure I am fully persuaded or convinced. Well, that's okay. We've got a prayer for that. As the Father turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That I may dwell in his presence and understand the fullness, the breadth, the depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus to me. Maybe you're sitting here uncomfortable with the language and thinking. Maybe it's outside your experience. Perhaps we've been speaking too much to Christians and, and yet you have never received. In fact, you are still rejecting the love of God in Jesus Christ to you. I cannot describe to you when we were yet without sinners or when we were yet sinners, God loved us. When we were helpless, Christ died for us. And if you have never accepted the love of God in Christ Jesus, just come. And if you are even now fighting and, and rejecting the idea of what God's love is like, just come and abide and remain in his love. May God bless us this morning.